Welcome to Character First, a podcast focusing on developing confidence, empathy, resilience, and 21st century skills for our children and our future. You're listening to episode 10, featuring guest Julia Freeland Fisher, Director of Education Research at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and author of Who You Know, Unlocking Innovations That Expand Students' Networks. Character First is hosted by Derek Correa. Thanks so much for joining us today on Character First, Julia. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the Christensen Institute and specifically about the work you do in the K through 12 education sector. Yeah, absolutely. So the Clayton Christensen Institute has been around for a little bit over a decade, and we were founded by Harvard Business School professor Clay Christensen, who's best known for coining the term disruptive innovation. Uh, and we can maybe get into what exactly disruptive innovation is. It's almost a cliche now in uh, the sort of tech bubble that we live in. True. But um, we take these theories of innovation that Clay developed um, in the private sector and we ap apply them to the public sector. So we have an education practice that looks a lot at the rise of technology in schools and how that could be um, sort of a transformative lever for change. We also have a healthcare practice and a global development practice that look at sort of innovations in those industries as well. And so that's sort of the model. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank. And my own research, I really started out sort of in our bread and butter research on blended learning um, and how technology was shifting instruction. But I had this lurking suspicion that this is about five years ago that we weren't talking about the full potential of technology because per how you and I, Derek, are communicating right now, in our adult working lives, we use technology to connect at the press of a button. But about five years ago, the mainstream ed tech market was really dominated by sort of academic content assessment and productivity tools. Um, and it felt like a big missed opportunity to not be talking about how we might be connecting young people, particularly to relationships that might otherwise be out of reach. So my current research really focuses on, on that domain of innovation. How are we uh, nurturing and expanding students' networks using both free and available enterprise technologies and sort of new ed tech tools designed with that particular goal in mind. Yeah, that's great. Your, your insight about five years ago seems to dovetail with the significant uptick in awareness and conversation around social and emotional learning. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you've written a lot about the importance of authentic human interactions, and, and that's certainly a fundamental aspect of, of SEL. How are you finding that we can do a better job at this in our schools? Yeah, so I'll be super honest. I think SEL was certainly percolating, I would say even long before five years ago. It's not a completely new concept for anyone who's worked with young people. But in my own research, until recently, I did not use the phrase social emotional learning. And it was not to sort of be high and mighty or reject the concept, but it was because I was trying to draw a distinction between teaching young people the social skills that they need to thrive both as citizens, but also increasingly in the workplace and the sort of knowledge economy. And the distinction between those skills and actual access to relationships. And in education, part of the thing that we tend to do, and this happens both in the sort of academic learning, and I see it in the SEL conversation as well, we sometimes fall into this pattern of treating relationships as inputs to skill development. And what my argument was, and the reason why I sort of hesitated to get too enthusiastically onto the SEL bandwagon was that if we pay attention to how young people access opportunity, relationships should also be outcomes in their own right. 
right? They shouldn't just be inputs to a sort of bundle of skills that the labor market prizes. They should be outcomes to the sort of diverse and widespread community that young people need to thrive, to get by, to get ahead. I think, yeah, I, I don't want to, um, I, I am increasingly looking at the intersection of building young people's networks and arming them with the sorts of skills that the SEL conversation has been emphasizing. But I think we do young people a disservice if we sort of make the statement that it's just skills and not actual access to relationships that can be, really be a game changer in their lives. Yeah, that's a much more authentic way of, of thinking about it. Social media has connected us in in many ways and, <laughs> and is many good and many bad it's it's definitely a, a multiplier in terms of networks but it also has a negative aspect to it you know a lot of people use this term the echo chamber of connecting in social media to the things that match the way that we think or the people that are like the people that we know you mentioned it's a little bit surprising that EdTech hasn't made more progress in connecting students. And in particular, are you seeing that happening now and especially connecting students from disparate geographies and socioeconomic backgrounds? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think um, I, I fully agree that there's this sort of uh, troubling, and this is society-wide, not specific to young people, troubling tendency to use technology to even more efficiently self-sort than we did 20, 30 years ago, and to sort of balkanize. And I think where ed tech has a role to play that's very distinct from, let's say, Facebook, even though any young person listening to this podcast is like, what's Facebook? I'm not on that. But you and I as adults can, can relate to Facebook. Um, is that ed tech is thinking about expanding students' horizons and access to opportunity. It's thinking about those sorts of value propositions that we want our education system to be an engine of opportunity. And as a result, we're actually thinking about delivering relationships that could benefit young people, not just helping young people digitize their offline networks in an online Rolodex. So I, I'd, I'd offer like a quick quote from, from Mark Zuckerberg. This is before he was sort of sitting in front of Congress trying to defend Facebook from the decline of democracy. But uh, he's talked actually in the past about how Facebook algorithms were designed to help you find people you already knew, not find right. people that you should know. And I think that's like the perfect example of sort of where ed tech has a role to play. We actually, if we're thinking about what do young people want to accomplish, what are their passions, what are their interests, and how are we pairing them with either, in your case, a, a sort of near peer mentors with similar interests or adults working in industry that can help them pave those pathways. So I think it's if we weren't worried about the echo chamber, there wouldn't be an ed tech market play here because we'd just be using these free and available social media technologies to sort of amplify, sustain, and sort of expedite students' existing networks. And instead, if you look at the data, we actually want to be putting new connections of people That's they right. should I mean, know. If this, why would <laughs> you need technology if it was enough to know the 30 people that were in your classroom, right? I mean, that's... Exactly. Yeah. And and I will say, just so that we're not fully bashing existing tools out there, if you if you think about a Facebook or a LinkedIn or an Instagram and some of the common use cases for those, there is something very powerful about them. And it's that they are disrupting the decay rates of our friendships. Um, put a different way, if you're on Facebook, you are currently in touch with a whole bunch of people you probably should no longer be in touch with. But we have these tools that have, that have allowed us to maintain and sort of keep relationships on ice 
for much longer. And that's super exciting, right? If you think about switching careers multiple times in your life, having that sort of online dynamic Rolodex is really powerful. It's just not going to actually put new connections within reach that you may be shut out of because of geography, time, income, race, etc. Character First is sponsored by Kindred Us, connecting people with purpose. So you had mentioned connecting people with adults as well. And when when you think about mentorship, mentors are a really authentic human relationship. I mean, generally mentorship, sure, it might be happening with some objectives or end games in mind, but there's usually an authenticity to the way that people come together uh, to help one another. And unfortunately, it's a notion that's more familiar in our adult lives. Most of the time you get mentors in the mm-hmm. workforce. And as you know, our business is about trying to bring mentorship into childhood. In the absence of, of yeah. something that's actually facilitating it, like role model mentors, for instance, are you seeing other things that are facilitating these mentorship type relationships? And is there anything that's making it more accessible in the areas where it can be more challenging? Sure, yeah. Yeah, well, so to back up, I mean, I think the uh, I, I've sort of be- become a informal member of the mentoring club, which is to say that the education world and the mentoring world are two very different worlds. <laughs> and I've discovered this over the past five years. But I think obviously we have a long history of formal mentoring programs in the United States, but we also have a long history of the immense struggle of of scaling those programs, right? That they're high cost, high touch models, that it's hard to recruit, it's hard to retain mentors, and it's hard to get the funding to support the sort of programmatic backbone of a, of a high quality mentoring program. And as a result of that, something that's happened in the mentoring movement that I'm sure you guys are sort of tapping into is the concept of delineating formal mentors that may be accessed through a formal program and informal mentors, which are the sort of naturally occurring mentorship relationships in our lives, be that with, as a young person, be that with a coach, a teacher, an after-school provider, a religious leader. And what that's trying to capture is like, mentor may have this sort of formal connotation in some of our minds, but if we're living lives integrated into a social fabric, it can also be a natural occurring phenomenon. Now I bring that up because um, if you look at the data and there is slim but troubling data on this, young people from low-income backgrounds report far fewer non-family adult informal mentors in their lives. And we can hypothesize a couple reasons for why that is. Our big guess is that the enrichment spending gap is increasing those informal mentoring gaps. So essentially, when affluent parents sort of run amok on enrichment spending, they're not just procuring exotic experiences and learning opportunities for their children. They're procuring a range of non-family relationships for their children to have in their lives. And so to answer your question of sort of what else is out there, a lot of what we're looking at is number one, where technology can lessen the costs of of otherwise high cost formal mentoring models so that you're actually connecting with people more affordably using technology, either because you don't have to be in person or sort of a blended model where some of the mentorship happens in person and some of it happens through, through a platform. And then the other thing we're looking at is like, 
where do schools fit into this equation? How could schools actually be designed to address some of those informal mentorship gaps by actually putting more relationships within reach for students, particularly those furthest from opportunity? And that can range from everything from sort of sponsoring more guest speakers and project-based learning where you're bringing in industry experts to be part of that mix to peer and near-peer tutoring models inside of the school building. But really sort of, uh, if we want to scale this, I actually think schools become a really important We're lever so to, um, to, to get involved. It's our mission, and we see so much value in it. And in particular, we see not just the value that's obvious of connecting young people with older people who can support them in, in a lot of different ways, older meaning adults, but even near-peer and peer relationships are incredible to supporting EQ. And a lot of the yeah. the stuff that's coming into play now, especially when you talk about a private pay situation or schools paying for it, is going to start coming down to how do we measure these things? How do we know if we're yeah. spending X dollars per pupil on program X or Y that it's having some kind of an impact and quite different than the way we measure cognitive stuff, which is relatively easy. Um, measuring EQ is very challenging. What are you seeing mm. out there? Is there any standardization happening? Because that's the other problem. When measuring something is new, lots of different ways of measuring it crop up. And then it becomes very difficult to get any benchmarks because of all the different measurement modalities. Because of the noise in that market. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I'll be honest, I think the, the risk, and this is partly because under the Every Student Succeed Act, a number of states started to embrace these sort of non-academic measures in addition to the sort of already uh, energy that was coming up around SEL being important to complement academic or cognitive skills. It would be premature for the market to standardize right now. Um, and I say that partly because one of the things we've observed, and again, I want to caveat that this is not our area of expertise, but we're observing sort of the innovations in the field, certainly from a distance. One of the things that's happened is that um, schools are sort of talking about SEL as this amorphous bundle. And it means that the, the measurement conversation can get muddied because whereas there may be very discrete social emotional learning skills that particular interventions can deliver on, we sort of start to try and measure all of those at once with potentially imperfect instruments. And so what I'm most excited about are sort of point solutions that are, that are promising to deliver on specific outcomes. So a clear example of this is what Empatico.org is building around measuring empathy and sort of a change in empathy due to their, um, they do sort of near-peer global exchange programs online, but with the end goal of sort of students being able to take the perspective of another student who may have a very different background from their, their own. And, and so it's those sorts of models where we're getting really, really specific about the discrete skill that we hope students are developing, and we're able to evaluate and validate measures in specific rather than in this broad bundle of SEL. And this is not SEL's point. Fault. This happens all the time. Personalized learning is another example of this right now, where we bundle a whole bunch of philosophies and goals and outcomes together, and then they become totally very true. difficult to measure. And, you know, it's interesting. You're, you're super focused on on networking, which is an incredibly important thing. And the funny thing is that um, most adults and educators understand how important networking <laughs> is. Yet, as I mean, I've I, I read your book, and that's what the actually triggered me to start having these conversations with our kids because generally mm -hmm. we don't and we just think it's like well isn't it just through osmosis that <laughs> you would understand that 
networking is valuable. And again, like it's a little bit of, you know, people probably think they're measuring that because mm. the kids are counting how many Instagram connections they have and how many people liked their latest posts. <laughs> um, but it's not really a, a counting uh, endeavor. It's not about uh, quantity. It, it really is about quality. So, you know, how are we going to figure out how to help kids understand the, the power of networking, the relationships for their own sake? at a time when we seem to be more connected than ever, mm -hmm. yet we're not. Right. Like that's that's somewhat perplexing to a young person. Yeah. Right? Well, I think so. So one thing just to sort of um, maybe add to what you were saying around quantity versus quality. One thing we talk about, and this may sound like a crass metaphor, but one of the things we should be paying attention to is network diversity. And the analogy I use um, that at least resonates with adults, this may not be the right messaging for young people, is that it's, it's not unlike a stock portfolio. You diversify a stock portfolio because you're buffering against the unknowns of the future. And really, a network functions in a very similar way. We can't predict the future, particularly if you're a young person and you don't know what the heck you want to do when you grow up. You actually can't forge a network in a sort of unidirectional monolithic way. You're best served by forming a diverse network that you can turn to depending on what comes up in your life. And so I think diversity is a sort of, a, 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 and sort of the structural diversity of your network is something that we would want young people and frankly, all of us to be paying attention to. And that sometimes gets, I think, lost if we're either just counting number of connections, to your point, or if we're just focusing on really high quality relationships, that, but that may have a lot of redundancy in the information or opportunities that they can offer young people. Um, I, I think to your other question, though, of sort of like, how do we teach this? I get this question a lot. My, like my teenager doesn't think about networking. He or she is thinking about like Instagram or prom or summer or whatever. And there's a lot of mental models out there of like why young people might not prioritize networking. And and I come back to a researcher named Mario Louise Small, um, who's at Harvard, and who's, his big contribution to the field of social capital or, or sort of how we build networks was to say, look, forming networks is not a free-floating phenomenon. We don't just sort of walk out the door and run into human beings and that's how you network. Networks are born out of institutional design. So our institutions, whether on purpose or sort of um, in spite of themselves, create the opportunities for relationships to be formed, to be nurtured, to be positive, or frankly, to be negative. And so what I think the, the roundabout answer to that question is, is how are we designing environments, whether they're in school or in out-of-school settings, where, that are awash in relationships and that are creating opportunities for young people to build those relationships in authentic ways? And that's very different than like the sorts of cocktail party schmoozing that might come to mind when you hear the word networking. Um, and, and, but I think it will have a longer sort of impact on young people's lives if we can think of this as an institutional design question rather than a like crash young people and new people together question. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Julia. Appreciate it. It was super insightful. My pleasure. Yeah. I always love the chance to talk about networks. So and anytime, Derek. Thank you for listening to Character First. Character First is hosted by Derek Korea. 